how many of you have lost friends who were unsaved just because you took the Bible seriously? You didn't become a harpy. You never even brought up your faith, maybe once or twice. But because you read a Bible, they found out about it. You're a Christian now, and suddenly they have begun attempting to attack that side of you, even though you haven't done anything to provoke this. You're not out to change them, but boy, are they out to change you. And when they fail, what happens? Things get worse. They try harder. These are your so-called friends. Then it gets to the point where every single conversation leads to some form of attack against your faith. So eventually, one of two things happen. Either you get fed up and tell them off, to which they in turn expel you from their friendship, or you have to expel them from yours because it won't stop. They won't leave you alone. They're no longer your friends. They've made themselves your enemy who hates you. And some of you may have even lost Christian friends because you took the Bible more seriously than they did. You weren't out to change them, but they've expelled you from their inner circle because if you were a real Christian, then you'd be married by now with a successful career and 2.5 children. Why aren't you a successful lawyer or a successful doctor or a successful whatever, as though all of that is somehow a thermometer for where your spiritual maturity is? That's not what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't fit into the mold of today's prosperity, Christians. Heaven forbid you trust the Lord for all of those things instead of going out there, grabbing the bull by the horns and getting it yourself. These are the same Christians who think the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is actually somewhere in the Bible. Not only is that not in the Bible, folks, but it's a message that opposes what the Bible teaches. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who've reached the end of themselves. Sometimes God drives you to the end of yourself because that's what it takes to get you to quit leaning on your own abilities, to quit leaning on your own understanding and start trusting Him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice Matthew's record of Jesus' sermon here indicates Jesus is covering all kinds of ground. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which is heaven, and also the kingdom of heaven, which is to be the earth. Three mentions so far of the future kingdom on the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All three of those are talking about the future kingdom on the earth when Jesus takes over. But then this last part here, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. In where? In heaven. I only bring this up to keep us from building walls between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. That just aren't there. Those walls are, I mean, one extreme is to assume that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing, when they're not. One is the Father's throne, the other is the Son's throne. The Father's throne exists now, and has always existed, and will always exist. The Son's throne doesn't exist yet, but will. And once it does, that kingdom will exist forever. Those two thrones are different and separate thrones. But the other extreme is to build walls between them. 
Some scholars say that all of this kingdom of heaven stuff, Jesus' rule on the earth, that it's for the Jews only. That it's Israel only, the Jews only. It's got nothing to do with the Gentile. The Gentile won't have anything to do with this. Well, there's nothing in the scripture to indicate that. The kingdom will be a Jewish kingdom. Yes, Jesus is Jewish. He's an heir of David, a Jewish king. He will be ruling on David's throne, a Jewish throne. And what is one of Jesus' titles concerning the kingdom? He's called the king of what? The king of Israel. But where do we get the idea that there's a wall between that kingdom and heaven? If there was, then Jesus wouldn't call it the kingdom of heaven, would he? There's no wall of separation there. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the Son's kingdom. But then he turns right around in the next verse and says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in where? In heaven. Now let's focus real quick on that word rejoice for a minute. What, what do you mean rejoice? I mean, I can understand being comforted, but here in this last category, he turns it up a few notches. He's saying, if it's gotten to the point where your commitment has actually made you unpopular, men hate you and exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil, not because you're a religious harpy, not because you're an arrogant, judgmental Pharisee, but because you're actually a follower of Christ and Satan's turned up the heat to the extent that people hate you. It's gotten that bad. Jesus says to you, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. Folks, don't gloss over that word great. We use it all the time, but how great is great when Jesus is the one using that word? This is a guy who invented the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, stars the size of our solar system, whole galaxies. I mean, you've got good, better, great. What impresses God to the extent that he would ever use the word great? Even in Genesis chapter 1, when he's creating the entire universe, he only uses the word good. God saw it, that it was good. <laughs> the universe. So what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word great? Whatever it is, Jesus is saying it's worthy of your jumping up and down out of rejoicing. 